come now to a time when we read God's Word, and we study it, and we take the time out in our service to meditate on what the Lord has for us today. And we are finishing up, as I've said each week, in the Gospel of Mark, but over these past, last week and this week, we're taking a couple different uh, passages that are not from the Gospel of Mark, but that are, are um, you might say, co- a corollary to them. Today is Palm Sunday, and so particularly we want to be focusing on the kingship of Christ as we think about his entrance into Jerusalem on that donkey. And to do that, we're going to be looking at Psalm 110, Psalm 110. It's a messianic psalm. It's probably one of the most oft-quoted psalms uh, in the New Testament. It's quoted by the gospel writers. It's quoted by Peter. It's quoted by the writer of Hebrews. It's quoted all throughout. It's quoted by Paul in his epistles. It's quoted all throughout uh, the New Testament. And it particularly focuses in on the kingship and priestly nature of Christ. So with that, why don't we turn to our bulletins or our Bibles, and we're going to be reading Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Hear God's word. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we ask your blessing on the reading and the preaching of your word. May you be exalted And Lord, transform our hearts, change us for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So it is Palm Sunday, and if we were to go back, we've already looked at the passage in the Gospel of Mark, but if we were to go back and to reread that passage, you'll be be reminded that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Uh, he entered at the, the praise of the people that were around him. They came, they brought palms, they laid those palms down, and they sang, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. Why they did that? Well, I think it is because Jesus, as the disciples were quite aware, exalted or, or de- described him as the Christ, as the Messiah, as this one prophesied from of old that he was the king, the one in the line of David who would come and deliver his people. And so as he entered into Jerusalem on the cult of that donkey, bringing to fruition the prophet's, um, the prophet's uh, prediction that he would ride on the, on the donkey's cult, uh, they sang to him, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. Now we come to Psalm 110, which is a little different 
Because if we think about Jesus entering into Jerusalem on that donkey, we think of him in terms of his humiliation. We think of him in terms of his lowliness, right? Here he was, the king of glory, but he was born of the Virgin Mary. He was uh, came as a child. He was despised and rejected. He had no place to lay his head. He, he wasn't somebody that was looked on as glorious physically. He was He was a man. And there on that day in Jerusalem, he rode on a donkey and not a war horse. And in just a week following that glorious, somewhat glorious, lowly, uh, uh, kingly ride, he would be walking the same streets with a crown of thorns on his head and being mocked as king of the Jews. But here in Psalm 110, we have a much different picture it's not a lowly picture. There's nothing lowly or, hum- or, in a sense, in that sense, humble in this psalm. What we see here is the king of kings, God himself speaking. We have uh, David prophetically uttering the words of God himself, right? Moved by the Holy Spirit, given a revelation from God. He speaks the words of God, this glorious enthronement psalm what it is, an enthronement psalm. And as we move through the text uh, this afternoon, I, I want us to think about what does it mean that Christ is enthroned? We've been memorizing, in perfect timing, we've been memorizing uh, Psalm 2, uh, over the, uh, particularly verses uh, 5 to, I'm Psalm, uh, Philippians 2, over the course of the past few weeks, uh, Uh, verses 5 to 11, that look at this very topic. And here, Psalm 110 dovetails with that. And I want us to think about, as we look at King Jesus, both in that picture of his humiliation riding into Jerusalem, but also in this grand enthronement, throne room picture, really, of heaven itself, as we think about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, the one who has all power and majesty and who rules and who's coming to defeat his and our enemies. What I want us to see is that King Jesus is Lord, but more specifically, King Jesus is my Lord. Right? King Jesus is my Lord. Think about that. That's how this psalm begins. And then we're going to look at it in three parts. Uh, first, I want us to think about the eternal king. Second, I want us to think about the conquering king. And then finally, I want us to think about this king as a priest forever. And what does that mean? So those are going to be the three areas. But in the whole of it, I want us to be thinking about what does it mean to call King Jesus my Lord? Because that's actually how the psalm begins. Psalm 110 begins, the Lord says to my Lord. It's an interesting statement. We have to look at this. I don't know if you remember, but back in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus actually quotes this very thing as a, as pointing to him as greater than David. And we're going to, we're going to think about that uh, here. Prophet David, of course, is speaking about his own greater son who would come and be established as the Lord by the King of Kings, Yahweh himself. David recounts the words of God uh, divinely revealed to him. He says, sit 
these are the words of the Lord. Sit at my right hand. That's so David in the spirit prophesying is speaking the words of God himself. And he's saying, sit at my right hand. That's what the, what the God of heaven and earth says to David's Lord. We have to think about that. What does that mean? The very first thing that we note about sitting at the right hand of God is that it is the place of privilege and authority. In other words, it is a moment of enthronement in the, in the eternal throne room of God, right? So one of the difficulties we have with anything like this that kind of dips into the eternal realm, that looks at the throne room of God, is that we, we struggle because... When did it happen? As humans, we always think in terms of time. When is this? And I think we can think about it a little bit in terms of time. We can think about his enthronement being when he came to earth and he, he entered into Jerusalem and he was crucified. He is, in some sense, lifted up and enthroned. But we can also think about it in terms of his ascension. After he is raised from the dead, the power of the God is there present, and we, we see him conquering sin and death in front and de- delivering, uh, being raised up from the grave. And then he ascends into heaven and then is seated at the right hand of God. So there's a sense in which we can think about it in terms of time. Uh, it's at the ascension. But then if we go all the way to the book of Revelation, you'll remember there's also a throne room there, an enthroning of the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. Okay, so now we're dealing with the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth, but he was slain here in time, and he's being enthroned here and here. So what is it? See, our minds have trouble getting, getting around this, don't we? But I think it points to the reality that he is the eternal King. Yes, we can talk about how he, in Philippians 2 language, takes on flesh. It becomes a man that Jesus himself is king and that he, in his bodily form, is ascends to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming again in bodily form. So we can think about it in terms of time. But there's also a sense in which he is the eternal king. That's what this psalm is declaring. Here he is, the king who sits at the right hand of God. Psalm 2, we get a little bit of this as well. When you think about Psalm 2, which uh, I quoted a little bit earlier in the service, uh, but in that Psalm, he talks about his son. The Lord, again, talks about his son. And he says, today I have begotten you. Again, what does that mean? This picture the eternal king, he takes on flesh and comes to earth. Well, Jesus applies this to himself. Here he was, the God-man on earth, and he applies this eternal kingship to himself. He says in the Gospel of Mark, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus goes on, he says, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he the son? 
And then the great throng heard him gladly. Wow, he was a teacher. So how can he be greater than his father David? Again, because he is the eternal king. He is the Alpha and the Omega that we looked at last week in Colossians 1, the beginning and the end. He is the preeminent one, creator of all things, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So that's the first thing that we, we can say of, of this messianic character is that he is the Son of God, begotten eternally from, from the Father. They are one substance. They are, they are together with the Spirit, three in one. So how can he be David's greater son, or the son of David, but greater than David? Because he is the Alpha and the Omega. But second, is that he is enthroned at the right hand of God. It's interesting, Jesus ties this vision of himself, not just to Psalm 110, but also to Daniel 7. I've brought this passage up a few times in our study in the Gospel of Mark. And you'll remember Daniel 7 was another picture of the throne room of God. And here you have the Ancient of Days, God envisions, you might say, the Ancient of Days. And in Daniel's vision, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So not only is he king from forever, from eternity past, the preeminent one that we read about in Colossians 1 last week, but he is the king that is forever, and his kingdom shall last forever, never be destroyed. And so Jesus, when he was before, in a week from uh, this moment that we're looking at today, when he enters into Jerusalem, he's going to be before the Sanhedrin. And you'll remember all sorts of false accusations were made against him. And finally, the high priest, Caiaphas, kind of cuts to the chase. And Caiaphas says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus speaks, he says, I am that in and of itself was enough, right? For, for, for Jesus to say, I am, he is identifying himself with Yahweh. But he goes on and he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. There it is, connected, this idea of the king that we read about in Psalm 110 and that one, that Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days, coming with the clouds of heaven. Here he is, the eternal king. What did the priest do when he heard, when he heard Jesus say that? Anybody remember, kids? No? He tore his garments. He just went, ah! He was so angry. Why was he so angry? He tore his clothes. Why? Because here was one who was claiming to be God. The king of heaven and earth. He wasn't like us. David in the spirit here in Psalm 110 is speaking of the Messiah as the very son of God, not some earthly king, but the eternal king. And friends, this is a matter of first importance. 
It means that King Jesus has all authority to rule. I think it is not uncommon for us in our folly to reject his rule. But don't mistake our rejection of his rule as his failure to rule, right? Don't don't mistake our saying, God, I want nothing to do with you. Christ, I I don't believe you're the king. I'm going to go do my own thing. Don't presume that that means that Jesus says, okay, you, you, you are your king to yourself. I've got no rule over you. I have no power over you. He is the eternal Lord of glory, and we are all subject to him. So Philippians 2, kids know this. Is just your knee going to bow? Is just your your parents' knee going to bow? Whose knees are going to bow? Everyone's. Every tongue is going to confess. But the problem is we don't want this kind of ruler over our lives, Right? When confronted with this one who has all authority and power over heaven and earth, when we're confronted with it, we, we in our sin nature, revile it. We reject it. Peter points this out in his sermon. He's making the argument that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God. And he points out to uh, his hearers that day, he, he quotes Psalm 110 here. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He quoted this Psalm to point out along with the resurrection of Jesus and the power of Jesus. He pointed all these things out to say, listen, he is the king. And in verse 36 of Acts chapter two, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ This Jesus, whom you crucified. That's our nature. Whom you crucified. And what happened on that day of Pentecost when Peter said essentially what Nathan had said to, to, to David, you're the man. When he, when he said, you're the one, you're the one who did this. You crucified him. Of course, Peter's thinking, I did too. But what happened on that day of Pentecost when he, when he said, you were the one who crucified him, they heard it and they were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? I want to stop there for just a second. I think we can look back on that day of Pentecost and say, well, they were probably actually folks in that crowd who were part of the crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him, Right? Of course they were guilty. Of course they were cut to the heart. They were enemies of God. They were enemies of Christ. And maybe this afternoon you're, you're here thinking, I'm not an enemy of Jesus. I don't, I don't know if he's God, but I mean, he seems like a nice enough guy. He seems interesting. That's why I'm here. I want to hear a little bit about what he's saying. I, I think he might be a good teacher, a good moral leader, uh, something to the, that effect. But scripture is really plain on this point. All of us, all of us, apart from God's grace, all of us rebel against this king. All of us refuse to honor him as Lord. All of us, apart from his grace, exchange the glory of the immortal to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Because our fundamental problem as humans 
is not our failure to believe in the existence of God. I think most of us do. There may be some of us who say, I don't know if God exists. I'm I'm agnostic. Or some of you may be atheistic. And you might say, I don't believe God exists. But I think deep down, our biggest problem is that we don't want to bow our knee before the king. Friends, Jesus doesn't claim to simply be a prophet or a teacher or some moral guru. He claims in his word to be your king, the eternal king. As Peter said at Pentecost, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And as the eternal king, he doesn't sit idly by, which brings me to my second point. He is the conquering Lord. In this royal psalm, David is not simply prophesying about the Messiah being God and enthroned as king, but it is about his reign and rule, the nature of it. In verse 1, we see that the father will make his enemies his footstools. It's kind of a funny, funny picture, but that was a pretty common picture in the ancient Near East world. To have the foot upon the neck of one's conquered enemy is depicted all throughout the Near East. If you go to look at murals of kings of the ancient Near East, oftentimes they had their foot on the neck of their enemy, kind of saying, I win. It's a picture of absolute subjection. But in verse 2, we are told that Yahweh sends forth from Zion his mighty scepter. Here, the Messiah is pictured as the powerful instrument of rule. In Hebrew poetry, they like to use, how do I say it, a creative uh, a tool or, or, or a creative uh, way to use words. And one is called a, a, a metonym. I don't know if that is familiar to any of you. Um, but it simply is a term that you use to stand in for another term. Let me give you an example. Um, no offense to any attorneys in our midst. Um, We might say when there is some legal mess at hand that the the company brings in the suits, right? They bring in the suits to deal with the issue. We're using the word suit to represent the lawyers, to to represent the the attorneys that, that are coming in. But here, God is using this language of his scepter to represent the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm going to send my scepter out. I'm going to send Jesus out, the Messiah King, who's going to rule, particularly in the midst of the Lord's enemies. And it isn't exactly what... I'm. I'm It's exactly what Jesus did. He entered into the world and he came into the midst of his enemies and he faced the very powers of hell. And what did he do? He ruled and he overruled them. How do we see that in his life? Well, one of the ways we can see it is when he was uh, in the wilderness, right? He went into the wilderness to be tempted. And in the wilderness, he wielded the sword of the spirit, the very word of God. And when, when confronted with Satan and the temptation that Satan brought, He defeated him, in a sense. He overcame him. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Or when he overturned the ravaging effects of the fall by healing the sick and the lame and giving sight to the blind and causing the deaf to hear and raising the dead to life. 
He was showing his rule as the king, as this, the one who was coming to conquer his enemies. To conquer sin and death. But in ruling and conquering of his enemies, there's also something else that's going on. He's gathering his army, his people. Look, look here in verse 3. It says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Okay, so there's, there's a little bit confusing, right? What is this thing about the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth will be yours? That, that's a really difficult uh, a little piece, um, but we'll, we'll try to unpack it a little bit. What does it mean that the people will offer themselves freely on the day of his power and holy garments? And what does it mean when it says the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth will be yours? First, remember, who is speaking? Not David. David is in the Spirit, being moved by the Holy Spirit, prophetically speaking, the very words of God himself. So this is God speaking to the Messiah, speaking to his son. And this is what he says. Go out, rule. Your people will come to you. They will come prepared for you. They will be a holy people. And on that day of your power being revealed as the Lord of Lord and King of Kings, you will have a, 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 a army, a nation, a church for yourself. And then there's the second part here about the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth. It expresses the extent of the people that will come. And it, it expresses their own connection to him. He says, the Lord says to his Lord, God says to the Messiah, he says, from your womb. In other words, they come from you on that dawning of your day. When, when, you, when you are raised to new life, you're going to bring with you a whole host of people that are going to be raised to new life, born again, and they're going to be born of you and born of the Spirit. They're going to be yours, your people. And then the dew. Well, what is dew? Dew covers everything, doesn't it? You wake up in the morning, you step outside, and it's all over the place. That's how ubiquitous the people of God will be. It will be over the whole earth. The whole earth. Let me, again, bring back our Philippians 2 passage, especially for you kids, so you can keep this in your mind, remember it. Who is it that's going to bow before the Lord? Every knee, right? Granted, some will bow by the force of his authority and power. They will, they will be brought low, but many will come and bow before him, giving him praise because of God's grace. Every knee will bow and tongue confess. It is a glorious and terrible picture. And we see the terribleness of the picture here in verses 5 to 7, don't we? We see the terrible nature of it. For the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling it or them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. It's an awful picture. On the day of his coming, on the day of his wrath, he will execute judgment. Kings will be brought low. People will be brought low. It's a scary picture. 
but it's completely in line with the first point. He is the eternal king of kings whom humanity has rebelled against. He is the one who rules and reigns on high, and all the nations owe their allegiance to him, and yet we rebel against him. That's our nature. And God will not leave things as they are, but he will ultimately execute his judgment. It's a terrifying thing, but don't miss, don't miss this picture in the middle of him gathering his people to himself. And one of the things that I love about that is it says they'll come to him. They're not coming, kicking and streets. Screaming, it says your people will offer themselves freely. Friend, if you're here this morning, you have an opportunity this afternoon. I will never stop. It's just too hard. If you're here this afternoon and you hear this call to bow your knee, do it freely. Offer yourself up. He will bring you into his arms. He will show his mercy and his love to you. He is a gracious God. Second Peter, he says, but there is a day coming. We don't know that day, right? So his, his delay, his, his king as he reigns on high, Christ Jesus, he is coming again as we see pictured in the book of Revelation. When he does come again, he will come again to judge. Friend, his delay is patience. His delay is desire that you would turn and put your faith and trust in him, that you would not wait another day, but that you would come and bow your knee and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And one of the ways that we can hold these two things together, the terror of his judgment and the wonder of his grace, is by looking at this third reality, this third point, that he is the forever priest, the forever priest. In the middle of the psalm, there is an allusion to a very strange figure. His name is Melchizedek. It says here, you are a priest. It actually says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, for those of you who don't know, Melchizedek is a sort of one-off character uh, in, in God's word. He, he shows up for a moment and then he's, we see him no more. And that's actually a significant aspect to him. So in Genesis chapter 14 and verses 17 to 24, you can read about how Abraham, after defeating uh, uh, the Canaanite kings, particularly the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and delivering his nephew Lot, uh, after that he meets this king, this Melchizedek, this king of Salem. Uh, and when he meets him, uh, he brings and gives a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, as this great king, this king of righteousness and of peace, blesses Abraham. That's all we get. That's, that's the basic gist of the story. You can go back and read it. Genesis chapter 14. And now he shows up here in Psalm 110, this random character from Genesis. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, the writer of Hebrews gives us some insight, explains why and how this is significant in describing Jesus as the Messiah. Melchizedek was not only a priest, but a king, the king of Salem, likely the precursor of the city of Jerusalem. But the word Salem itself means peace, so he was the king of peace. And he was a priest of the Most High God, El Elyon. He was a priest of the Most High God. 
And not only that, but his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And the writer of Hebrews particularly notes that he just appears on the scene, no beginning and no end. Now, some of you may, this may not be your jam, I totally understand it, but in our household it is, it is the thing, or it has been for the past few weeks, or months and, and years really, is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Some of you may have read it. My kids just finished the third book. And um, in the first book, there is a character by the name of Tom Bombadil. Now, none of you probably care, so I, I understand. But those of you who do, you'll understand. But for those of you who don't care, have never read the book, you won't get it in the movies, right? So this character does not show up in uh, Peter Jackson's movie because he just shows up and he has no seeming role or significance apart from this one little tiny piece in the story. And there's Tom Bombadil. He's like a greater-than-life character whom the hobbits run into, and he delivers them from some situation, but he seems unaffected by what's going on in the world of Middle-earth, completely outside of it. He's completely other. Well, Melchizedek is a bit like Tom Bombadil. If, you, if that means nothing to you, let it go. Here he is. He just shows up. Doesn't seem to have a whole lot. But what he does have is, is that he resembles the Son of God in his priestly nature and his kingly nature. There's a word we use in theological realm we use for this. We call it a type. He's a type of Christ. How is he a type of Christ? How is he a type of the Messiah? First, we see it in the tithe that was given. He took a tenth from Abraham. In a sense, you know, in, in, in the Hebrew uh, world, they would give a tenth to the Levites. Um, but in this way, Abraham, with the Levites kind of in his loin, so to speak, to come out of him, everything that was Israelite was giving a tenth to Melchizedek. This is what the writer of Hebrews argues. Not only this, Father Abraham received the blessing from this king priest, though he himself was heir to the promises. And the writer of Hebrews mentions, he says, so this king is, is greater than Abraham, the one who received the blessing, because he's the one who blesses, and the greater always blesses the lesser. So what? So what? What's the point of all of this? Why is it that the Messiah should be in the mold of this strange priest king, Melchizedek? Well, the writer of Hebrews explains why the priest, the Levites, and the priests of Aaron under the Mosaic law were insufficient. Insufficient. They were part of the brokenness of generational sin themselves. They offered sacrifices, yet they themselves needed cleansing. Let me ask, how many bulls and goats and lambs were sacrificed year in and year out? Let's start to do the math on that. Like, how many? On, on the day of Passover, we're told that in the time of Jesus, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people that came into the city, all bringing with them families, sacrifices, it was quite an ordeal. Yet those bulls and goats did nothing. These lesser priests, these priests in the line of Aaron, pointed to the deep need for one who could make atonement, one who could actually pay the penalty 
for sin and death. One who did not descend from Aaron, whose priesthood was not dependent on his lineage, but rather one who, as the writer of Hebrews describes, came from an indestructible life. An indestructible life. Melchizedek was kind of like this king. He didn't have a beginning. He didn't have an end. He was a priest that kind of fell outside of generational uh, nature of the world. He was a picture of what it means. We needed one who was outside, who could come and who could make atonement and sacrifice for us that wasn't like us. A priest who would forever intercede for us. A righteous king who could make peace by his atoning work. And a priest king who could bless us with heaven itself. Today we're celebrating this eternal conquering priest king's entrance into Jerusalem. The people that day cried out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And here he was, the eternal king, riding into Jerusalem. There was the eternal king coming to conquer the great enemy, sin and death. Here he was coming to bring out a people from the enemy's land and to call them his own, to form for himself a church, an assembly. And he did so by coming as a forever priest to offer himself up as a sacrifice for my sins and for your sins. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We ask the question, how can he be a terrible God and yet make a people for himself? The answer is by his own blood, by his payment for our sins on the cross. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He's he rose again from the dead. I want to close by asking this question that I started out with. Is Christ your Lord? Is Christ your king? Is he your high priest? Can you cry with David, my Lord, my king, my savior? This psalm is a prophetic grand vision, yet it is deeply deeply personal. David, as he was moved by the Holy Spirit with this revelation, saw his own son as his Lord and Savior. What an amazing thing. You have before you an opportunity to worship, to join in the great host. You have an opportunity to call him Lord. And here's the good news. As he draws us together as his church, as his body, 
which he's purchased by his blood as the great conquering king. He brings us with him and he says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is like the dew that spreads across the earth. What good news. Go out, share the good news. Tell others of the wondrous hope that we have in this king. And don't delay because he is a king who will come again to judge the living and the dead. While it is still day, bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords, this priest king, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.